Welcome to the program, everybody. You just stepped inside of Psychotic Bump School, the place where education and entertainment meet at the intersection of funk and soul. My name is DJ Rome, and I want to welcome you to another exciting edition of Psychotic Bump School after a long hiatus. So, ladies and gentlemen, tonight... <laughs> it's been a long time, y'all. Oh, man, it's good to be back with y'all. But we have an exciting lineup this evening. We have about four different people coming through the school tonight. Of course, as you know, this is a politics podcast. This is a mental health podcast. We focus on entertainment and the like. And we're going to be having a really in-depth conversation with some social workers who are coming through to talk about children and adult outcomes in the foster care system, as well as in special education. We're going to be breaking it all down with Teresa Gonzalez, Kiana Gant, and Vivian Lewis-Mitchell. And returning to the school tonight is the good brother, Mr. Eric Rico. That's right, Mr. Eric Rico is a singer, songwriter, multi-instrumentalist. He has a couple of new projects out there right now, and it's always good to catch up with this soulful, soulful brother. Eric Rico is back to break it down with me, and I cannot wait to have that conversation with him. So that's going to be our lineup. And uh, you might want to call your friends and family to the radio or the computer because we are about to set it off. We're back, y'all. So this is KCWGTheTruth.com. My name is DJ Rome. Welcome to Psychotic Bump School. Stay tuned for more. We're going to kick off our show with our social workers after this. What up, y'all? It's your boy DJ Ski. And you live listening right now to the Psychotic Bump School with your host, DJ Rome, on KCWG, thetruth.com, the best internet radio station on the planet. Uh-huh. Driving some of the hottest cars New Yorkers ever seen. For dropping some of the hottest verses rappers ever heard. From the dope spot with the smoke block, clinging the murder scene. You know me well from nightmares of a lonely cell. My only hell, but since when y'all niggas know me to fail? Nah, we all my niggas with the rubber grips or shots. And if you with me, mama, rubber your th- and whatnot. I'm from the school of the hard knocks. We must not let outsiders violate our blocks. And my block, let's stick up the world and split it 50-50 Uh-huh, let's take the dough and stay real jiggy Uh-huh, let's sip the Chris and get pissy-pissy Flow infinitely like the memory of my n***a Biggie Baby, you know it's hell when I come through The life and times of Sean Carter in volume two Yes, we are back. KCWG, the truth.com. This program is called Psychotic Bump School. My name is DJ Rome. And ladies and gentlemen, as you know, the society can rise only as high as it prioritizes its most vulnerable citizens. And with the work going on across the country to address these issues pertaining to our youth, we are having a myriad of events emerge across the country particularly in the area of the foster care system. We have some people right here in California that are highly invested in these issues. So joining us for this segment, uh, we have clinical therapist and doctoral candidate, social worker, Teresa Gonzalez. Ms. Gonzalez, welcome to the program. How are you? 
Thank you so much on doing well. How about yourself, DJ Rome? Oh, we're doing cool and the gang. Well, can you give us an example of the issues that are impacting uh, this area of focus that you have? What are one or two misconceptions about this population, particularly foster care youth, that the society as a whole continues to get wrong? Can you talk to us about that a little bit? Absolutely. I'd be happy to discuss some of the themes in my research on intergenerational child maltreatment and trauma among foster youth who are parenting. Um, one of the prom prominent themes that is, is the cycle of trauma. This theme revolves around the idea that foster youth have experienced trauma during their childhoods and that they may perpetuate similar experiences for their children because of their background. How does this show up in your particular practice? Um, when you experience trauma and you're trying to treat it or address it, uh, what are some of the issues that they're coming into your office with, just as a practitioner? As a practitioner, I'm seeing that trauma is persistent. They yes. can have the coping, they can have the coping skills, but since they don't have familiar support, they really do end up falling back into patterns of behavior where it shows the persistency of trauma in their outcomes. They're not able to get past certain things. If you really consider their lives, for them to have ended up in foster care means that they were neglected or abused in some way, which is the intergenerational cycle of maltreatment. And so they they really do need a lot of support to get back on track, mm -hmm. educationally, financially, in, in um, the workplace. They need further preparation. Yeah, sure do. Now, as somebody that works in the community, I mean, I do it in the educational arena, just as an example, but just as a whole, the mental health community as a whole, how well would you say the mental health community is equipped to address these issues you're talking about? I must say that one of the positive aspects is that mental health professionals have developed specialized interventions and therapy tailored to this population that's, that has experienced so much trauma. And um, the emphasis is on trauma-informed care, meaning that the people that work with them understand their past and learn how to work with them, uh, the person's mental and emotional well-being. Absolutely. You know what just popped into my mind just now, just jumped into my head, is just having practitioners that are caring and kind of understand their audience, right? And so I'm wondering to what extent it matters that you have culturally sensitive or culturally informed practitioners who are able to provide these services in the first place. You have any thoughts about how important that is as it relates to people that you're targeting for these services? I do. I feel that there should be more training for direct care staff. I feel that the, the general public should be more aware of the needs of foster youth, as you know, that Foster youth have high rates of pregnancy. They have high rates of incarceration. They have high rates of homelessness. And once they're out of the system, it's really hard to keep track of them and their outcomes, including their children's outcomes. So we're, what we're seeing is a big pattern of families that are broken up. And also I'd like to shed light on foster youth parenting that are males. We need to do yeah. something for, for our young men, the fathers out there because research is showing that they do want to be involved, that they do um, become excited, that it is something of um, an encouragement to be a parent for these for the foster youth population. So I'd like to be part of that and help. The general consensus about fathers, uh, where would you say that stands right now? Because we know just through court systems and custody battles, 90% of children are awarded to mothers. 
And if we talk about the foster care system, I think there's a general perception or even a misconception about the, the viability of parenthood related to the genders that can provide good parenting. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Again, it goes back to, to research. Um, I, I would really love to hear some of these fathers' stories and how they have fared after parenting in their role as parents. But I do know that the court systems are being more lenient towards fathers because they do realize that we need we need the fathers as much as the mothers to raise these children. Amen. We sure do. And we yes, they are so needed, and um, so the courts are being kinder to them now in court. Mm. What is that a result of? You think I, I'm not arguing against that outcome? I think it's a positive develop in the right direction, and not to disparage the wonderful mothers out there that have done the job. But what would you attribute to that? Uh, development that courts are a little bit more, not biased, but they're showing a little bit more uh, judicial leniency toward fatherhood uh, in the court system with regard to foster parenting. Uh, anything, was there a, a flashpoint moment that kind of triggered this trend in this direction? Personally, I, I believe that this trend comes from recognizing that there is another parent. Should uh, yes. the mom be going through um, mental health issues or a substance abuse or what have you and she's she's trying to take care of these things and the child happens to be removed while under her care well we have another father we have another parent a father right. who can stand in her place so i think that that's guiding us towards the preparation of fathers to to stand up and and be a part of their children's lives how much longer will you be involved in this work? Your research is going to continue in this pattern, but uh, just as a career, as sort of a normative standard as to how you approach your work in general, uh, will your work continue to be targeted in this way or will it expand more toward the funding systems, the, the revenue streams that finance your kind of work? Where do you see your research taking you during and beyond this research project? As I said, I really have a focus on foster youth parents. So I see myself trying um, to be a foster youth advocate to the best of my ability and my dedication lies there. But moreover, I'd like to create agencies that will help these youth in this population. Well, we sure appreciate you, Teresa Gonzalez and uh, continue success to you and uh, come back and tell us how this project is going, okay? Yes, I sure will. Thank, Thank you, you so much. You're welcome. The prophet like Khalil Gibran we build upon. Life and its prospects, heated moments get dissected. Next record, new methods of a classic touch. Heard the sound before but never blasted much. Last of the Mohicans a mic speaking to sight freedom. To think any which way in all type seasons. Rip mics frequent, not only iron out the whack we left increasing. Children of the night, the most creative of them all. Expression of the essence of the music that came before they adored. 50 years ago it's still prominent. Known around the world for slinging vowels and consonants. Conglomerate, formed throughout the journey. We're learning how to connect the dots to keep the people still yearning for more. So music is forever, it's pretty evident. Support substance music, let's keep it relevant. No hesitance to the KIM. Motivation in the flesh, I wanna say I'm him. I wanna be remembered by many for blazing gems. World inspiring the youth, truth raising men. Praise the blend, yes it's him. Robinson, creation of hip hop zen. We recommend with our self-style wisdom, my friend. Building a solid foundation that groundbreaking stems. Piece it together. Gotta rock the real deal, is really all I feel is ill. Cool as an ice cube and kill 
it well with my skill. My life thrills international, I get gratitude. What's the matter with you? Stop hitting cause they came after you. Guidance is needed to keep the cipher completed. Can focus with funds depleted, but I'ma beat it. Be it, the MC, yeah, you wanna see it and hear it. The focus universal, don't fear it. Smearing on the walls of nostalgia like wowzers, bruh. Figuring a quadratic of life, advanced algebra. He writes about life in the real, the height and the thrill. And every now and then he write rhymes, boast about scale is ill. Standing strong still, countless songs rail. The conform still, not as bomb bill. A foundation strong enough to hold the weight. Gotta lead the weak, simply eliminate, it's getting late. Oh man, it's been so long. Never need to prolong, instead I just go on. Got the people in mind whenever scripting these songs. From the thought leaders down to the mind so strong. Stuck in the box, still giving love and props. This is hip hop, world life, it just don't stop. Okay, we are back. KCWG, the truth.com. This program is called Psychotic Bump School. My name is DJ Rome. And ladies and gentlemen, the perpetual and ongoing discussion about college readiness. So joining me to have this conversation, we're going to have social worker Kiana Gant. Miss Gant, how you doing? I'm good. Thank you for asking. How are you? Oh, we are cool in the gang. So I'm very excited about this topic because you're actually doing some work in this area. Uh, your focus is on just breaking the breaking down to its final compound, this whole deficit paradigm that seems to exist regarding black males and their uh, inability to learn or so people think. Uh, yeah. What are your thoughts on this and what is it that brings you to this topic? So currently my son, black male, um, he's in eighth grade, has a learning disability which found out later on in his educational career, but I noticed certain resources were not provided to him to help him prior to learning that he had a disability. So why do some kids in some education systems or, uh, or just school districts get different services or resources than others? Yes. For me, that was, it was, yeah, that, that was a lot for me as a parent and not having those same resources available to my child. Okay, can you give us one or two examples of the resource deficit that exists in perhaps the more affluent school systems compared to those of the general typical African-American male in this country, particularly in the state of California, maybe? Yes, we see, currently we see students with Black males in particular, we're going to stay on this topic, Black males in particular, they will instead of um, schools looking at how they approach black males with a learning disability, they target them and say, hey, you have, um, you're just being disruptive. You're being defiant. Yep. Not that there's a disconnect in the information maybe that is being provided to them. Mm -hmm. By doing these exclusionary practices, we are increasing the um, prison of, uh, prison population for our African-American males. We are not keeping them in classes because we're saying, hey, you're disruptive, so you need to leave. Oh boy. All right, and so just the the general aversion that educators seem to have just from the very mere presence of black men or young black males in schools is sometimes quite often perceived as a threat and something that needs to be contained or um, disciplined. Yeah. Uh, Okay, so we could definitely talk about the school to prison pipeline, because I'm sure that that kind of connects to this. But what are some of the needs, given that you have a personal interest in this for sure, but just generally speaking, you can use your own experience if you like. Uh, what do they commonly keep getting wrong about these young men in school systems and their potential for learning? I think there is a disconnect in culture, understanding um, our black culture and what that means just because we might 
elevate our tone does not mean that we are aggressive. Mm. Um, another thing in particular is having other teachers or educators who look like us, who understand, who can accommodate some of the things that we're going through or acknowledge some of the things that black males or students in particular go through. Mm. Um, those are other things and just being valued, feeling valued in school. I think there's a lack of that. And we research demonstrates that, that there is a lack of value towards students with a learning disability, those in particular black. These are things that students need to, to move forward, to feel motivated, to even strive through the different struggles that they may have with their, with the disconnect between the information being provided to them in schools. Yeah. Um, but then to regurgitate that and really move forward and thrive in, in college, because that is the purpose of, of my study is to get them to college. What are we doing to prepare our black males with a learning disability to get to that next educational level? How yeah. do we get them to post-secondary education? Um, that's a very good question. So with regard to that, what are we seeing once they get to college and we talk about college readiness, if you have a learning disability and you go to presumably, not in every case, but presumably a community college first prior to a university, uh, any idea what uh, people in that realm of academia are experiencing with the preparedness of African-American males with a learning disability? What are they seeing at the collegiate level? What I see, what is being reported is that we are black students in particular are underprepared. We're not coming in and maintaining at the same level as our counterparts, um, i.e. different different races, just in general. If we just compared us to uh, our Caucasian counterparts, we are not measuring up at the same level. So much so that black males are underprepared, black females are, are beating them in college rates, just graduation rates, black males are are the lowest to graduate or even to continue with their education. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I think there's uh, there's something about education. I have some theories on that in that there's a predominant strain of female teachers compared to male teachers. So I think across the board, just guys in general just don't take as much interest in formal education as our female counterparts do. You're absolutely right. Uh, the women in uh, the African-American community definitely outnumber the number of uh, enrollees in, in college. But across the board, I noticed that when there's an absence of male role models, there seems to be a general resistance to pursuing uh, higher pursuits uh, relative to the men. You tend to model the people that kind of bear your resemblance. Yeah. There, there was a documentary recently. They used to call themselves the Central Park Five. And they did a documentary, Ava DuVernay, in fact, she did a miniseries on Netflix called When They See Us. And she was just talking about what happened to them. And the fact that she titled it that, it's like, they don't even see us. Yeah. So if if you take away, and I know you're talking about young men with learning disabilities, is it, what else do they bring because I, you know, because I assess this population so much, I know that I know what a reading disability is. I know how to assess for it. And I know what the processing needs are for people who experience this. I noticed that they develop other ways to cope with their learning disabilities, provided that they have teachers that can help them manage it so it doesn't hamstring their long-term success. And that includes social affluence as well. Mm -hmm. Any idea how these young men are able to comport themselves is just because they have a learning disability, is there a social deficit? Is there a, 
uh, unemployability deficit? Are they less hireable relative to other people because of their learning disability? Any thoughts about that? You know what, that, that's a great question. Right now, black students with a disability are less likely than their white student counterparts with a disability to live independently mm. or earn above the minimum wage or even just participate, like I said, in post-secondary education. Yeah. There yeah. is a huge disconnect and we see some disabilities we think are just like blanket, um, like reading disabilities and things like that. Yeah. My son in particular has an auditory processing. Yes. So he doesn't hear and like process information as the next person. So you think on surface, oh, you're fine. Cause that's what we were told for so long. Mm -hmm. Actually really take a, like pay attention and, and really seek to understand my child. Did you, did the student or the teacher, excuse me, notice that, Hey, there is something, hold on, you know, let me, let me slow down just a bit and like focus on this individual. But it right. take, it took for, for me, the parent to be, to be an advocate for him and to not allow them just to tell me anything and to know my educational rights and what should it should be done and must be done to help my student. Did you have to fight hard to, to get that point? I did. I, did. I, I sent emails so much so on my first meeting that we were supposed to have at his elementary school um, with the psychologist. He didn't even show up. He didn't show up? Did not show up. So when uh, I tell you they try to reschedule the meeting for you at least. I had to. No one knew where he was. That that's the crazy part. No wow. one knew where he was. The staff attempted to help me very much, um, but it took for me again to email, and now I'm CCing other people. So now I can't leave it at this this school level. I need to take it up a notch. So I need to find out who in the district can help me. And then when I did that, that's when I got some results, and I started getting some feedback. Oh, boy. So on behalf of the fellow psychologists out there, uh, we apologize <laughs> to you, good sister. You should not have been left high and dry in a situation like that. Um, one or two more questions and then we'll we'll let you go, because I think about this issue are how commonly are emotional challenges, behavioral challenges accompanying these learning deficits and the perception of whether or not somebody can learn and thrive in the uh, the big world, because if they also have some emotional challenges or you know challenges with behavior, uh, that can also manifest as adults. Uh, what are you seeing around a learning disability relative to emotional functioning? My study didn't go too far into the emotional functioning piece of of this, but that is great, and I think I need to incorporate that. Um, but just highlighting some of the social and academic challenges deriving from um, different socially constructed systems, mm -hmm. we are noticing that they're, they're creating harmful student outcomes. They're increasing high school dropout rates, juvenile justice referrals. Yeah. Um, and that just, again, as we said earlier, just increases our prison population. Mm -hmm. um, but I think what we need to do, just educators and um, supportive services and professions, if we just focus on college preparatory programs or just programs in particular that will help prepare students for the next realms, whether whatever it is, their transition period from high school, you know, to, to life, to college, to work. I think if we look at the different variables that, that are staggered against them, we could probably help them navigate these systems. These systems are huge and they don't know. A lot of parents don't even know, but if we 
just slow down a bit and look at the different things that affect us or them, I think that we can, they would be successful. We can overcome some of the odds that are stacked against us, like the, we can decrease college dropout rates. Absolutely. We can decrease the prison population. 29% of the state prison population are African Americans. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's been a long disparity uh, relative to our population numbers. There's a overrepresentation in that system. But I have high hopes for uh, children like your son, Miss Gant. <laughs> Thank you. As I know that the majority of African American males are in the middle class in this country. I know the majority of African American males are not locked up. Uh, the prison population, though disproportionate in the representation of African American males, certainly. Uh, for sure. And one is too many, ladies and gentlemen. I'm not saying we're not there, but even one is too many. But by and large, the overall prison population in this country, no matter what the demographic is, is relatively small to the 330 million people that are in the country. And we have to keep that in mind, too, so that people don't overstate the and I'm not, I'm not talking about you, Ms. Gant, but people tend to overstate and overdramatize the the, the 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 proposed threat that the black male, whether he's undereducated or you know coming into society with some some things to overcome, that he represents a threat that isn't reflective in the actual data that's out there. I have yeah. high hopes for your child and your ch children like your son, mm -hmm. and I've seen these cats thrive into the most productive, most amazing young contributors to society that you'll ever want to see. So I really appreciate you doing this work. Any final thoughts you want to talk about what this research means to you and where you plan to take it once it's all finished? Yes, uh, thank you. I, I truly want to create a federal program. I'm looking into a federal trio program. There's multiple out here. However, I just want to remove some of the barriers that exist to get in those college preparatory um, skills and knowledge that they provide, these programs provide. So I hope mm -hmm. to open a college preparatory program and partner with schools like in Compton, California, and really get to our black and brown student population and help them thrive and give them resources that are not provided to them in these areas. And I know that for a fact, because there's no uh, federal program right now in these schools. So mm -hmm. that's providing college preparatory um, skills and knowledge and, and understanding what it looks like to go to college. Let's go tour some colleges. So that is my goal is to get into um, the college, excuse me, the Compton Unified School District and really help our, our students thrive and beat some of the odds, like I said, that are stacked against them already. Absolutely. I appreciate you doing this work because whether y'all know it out there or not, ladies and gentlemen, Compton is actually a very beautiful city. I have it family is. there. I used to work there. Um, it's a highly misconceived or it misperceived is. city. It's a beautiful it place. Uh, it is. There's the manicure lawns. There's nice communities. I have my own adult residential facility in that community. There you and go. It's beautiful. See? And it's so it's not what everybody portray Compton. It is not. It's really not. And I hope to demonstrate that. Well, you, you are definitely doing your part. Ms. Kiana Gant is a social mm -hmm. worker in Southern California doing research in this area, breaking down that paradigm of the unprepared black male with a learning disability. We sure appreciate you, Ms. Gant. Will you come back and join us sometime? Yes, please. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Now everybody serenade the new faith of Kendrick Lamar. 
This is King Kendrick Lamar King Kendrick and I meant it, my point intended is raw Fix your lenses, forensics would've told you Kendrick had killed it Pretend it's a massacre and the mass is upon us And I mastered being the master at dodging your honor In the chapter that read at 25 I would live dormant like 5 in the morning The raise the spot while Kendrick's performing And if they take everything, no I got Compton, Compton Ain't no city quite like mine Hey Trey, what's happening with it, man? Still I'm mad at peel the plastic off it, you can feel the magic Still I'm laughing at the critics talking, I can see them gagging When I'm back in the back of my city Back in the back with a batch of them banging Dre beats with me Look where I'm at, it's the murder cap and I'm captain at birth in this gangster rap It's a rap when I'm done and I come a long way From a hundred dollars a month to a hundred mil in a day Which I'm from Compton, Compton, ain't no city quite like mine so come and visit the tire screeching ambulance policemen Won't you spend a weekend on Rosecrans? Khaki creasing, crime increasing on Rosecrans Kendrick Conan Where your swore at? Hand on the cross and swore that I do it biggest respute for them shooters Karma Sutra scream your position and make you own that I'm trying to stay grounded like four flats But I know flats and Pagu Cryptats A swarm on me like a beehive Hop in the G-Ride from the west to the east I know just how come to roll And that's a given I passed the Pass the torch, of course it's my decision I crash the ports, then you report that you see me in Benzes I must report that we import them narcotics You bought it, then talked about it When you hit the speakers, the music business I blow up every time we throw up a record Depending on what you expected I'm sure it's bigger than your religion Perfected but that manifested music to live in What's up, everybody? This is Cy Smith, and you're listening to Psychotic Bump School with your host, DJ Rome, on KCWGTheTruth.com, the best internet radio station on the planet. All the while I was round my out of town, college wilding out. Restaurants, destined dining, dashing, call it dining out. Supposed to be in class, but I was hiding out. My friends take a little shot, smoke a lot of foolish on the campus. Skipping practices and acting like a rock star Going from in the dorm to in the car Leaving the football field But that we still sorry in the problem from the home front On my home screen calling me I don't want to answer My brother Carl hit me Said my granny had cancer I'm supposed to graduate And make my way back to Atlanta No job, no money or nothing from balling Because between that and school That was really all And maybe here's the back That broke the camel with the straw I wasn't on camera with them amateurs That they saw But they said they still caught me and my dog Stealing boxes like Craig on his day off Called us in the office Day before we post a walker Called a squad car A couple officers I knew I was gonna tell He was looking nauseous Now I'm sitting in the cell Double crossed us Crossed me off the list for scholarship Because I lost it No more football My red shirt Senior season exhausted So I'm off it And I'm right back in Atlanta with a half a gram of and a gold Pontiac that my granny had bought for me. I was sleeping in the back, my dad kicked me in the streets. When he saw my neck tatted, then I told him I was rapping. School, no going back, he said. If I cannot follow his rules, just going pack. Told you he'd be acting lame sometimes. Okay, we're back again. KCWG, the truth.com. The name of this program is Psychotic Bump School. My name is DJ Rome. And ladies and gentlemen, we're continuing our conversations about the state of mental health. And this topic right here is of supreme interest to me. Um, provider bias. Oh, my God. We as consumers of mental health services in our community, African-American community, or the community, let, let's start with the community at large, 
writ large African-American across the country. I mean, there have been plenty of discussions since I've been on this planet regarding the extent to which we access mental health services. And now, uh, not just now, but you know, in recent times, we understand that there is certainly a disparity in services and disparity in service providers. And some of that could be due to, or at least in part attributed to, the provider bias that is inherent in the system itself. So I want to talk about that topic with our next guest. She is a director of a psychiatric hospital in the beautiful Northern California. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Ms. Vivian Lewis-Mitchell. Hello, oh. Ms. Mitchell. How are you? Hello. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me on today. Well, sure. Appreciate you. You're a social worker doing some amazing work in the golden state of California. So this issue is near and dear to your heart. I can tell. What is it about this topic that fascinates you so much and how pervasive is this issue with regard to provider bias? Can you talk to us about that a little bit? I can. I can. It's near and dear to my heart, honestly, uh, because I was in another profession and decided to transition into social work. And as I was completing my master's degree, my son, who was a senior at Hampton University, had a psychotic break. So I quickly switched my, the emphasis of my degree was children and families, and I quickly switched over to mental health, um, just so I can learn more about how the system operated and what my son was going through. It came in handy as I helped him walk through the system as a consumer. And I quickly learned at that point that there's a huge disparity in the treatment of African-Americans uh, in the mental health system. Ooh, and what are two, well, one or two, what are the common disparities that exist in our community that are not as pervasive in other communities? Well, I can tell you the number one is the provider bias. Um, providers do not uh, go to the extent of evaluating uh, African-American as they do their counterparts. Mm. Um, what I mean by that is we're quickly diagnosed with a psychotic disorder when in fact a mood disorder may have been more appropriate. For instance, uh, my son, he was diagnosed with schizophrenia as soon as he was in the ER. Uh, mm. As I was going through school and learned lots about the DSM and studied it myself, I quickly learned that it takes a bit of time to get that diagnosis. And oh, what yeah. my son, in fact, had uh, started with depression, but he did, in fact, have a brief psychotic episode. That all occurred about 11 years ago. He's never been hospitalized since, and he doesn't take medication. He's actually a substitute teacher. He finished his degree, and he's fully mm -hmm. functional. Um, wow. But he had aspirations of entering the military, and because of that hospitalization and his diagnosis, it, it kind of um, excluded him from that opportunity. Look at that. Mm -hmm. and the see. Thing I, yeah, the other thing I can say um, that's biased is if you look at the areas most occupied by African-Americans, a lot of times the most intense services that are needed are not within, are within reach that and or their insurance doesn't cover it. So uh -oh. that leaves us in a position where um, therapies or treatments are available, but unobtainable. Ooh. 
Well, uh, let's get into that a little bit. And uh, first of all, shouts out to your son and uh, shouts out to all the substitute teachers out there. Of uh, <laughs> I used to be one of them when I was in Southern California for almost 15 years. So it is definitely a valued and underappreciated profession. So shouts out to him. And we were talking earlier about the outcomes later on if someone is uh, just happens to get that label or any label associated with uh, disorder uh, pinned upon them, the outcomes that it can either create or inhibit later on. And so you just touched upon one of them. If he has or anyone has aspirations to get into the military, uh, there could be a problem if a child is labeled such as uh, emotional disturbed and anything related to a mental health issue that uh, caused any type of um, momentary psychiatric hold. So what else, um, in terms of long-term prospects, um, what other concerns have you noticed in terms of what it could mean if we don't get this right? If they don't have the same access and they don't have providers that are actually sensitive to the cultural environmental stressors that are contributing to this problem, and they're just randomly, summarily just writing them off without doing an in-depth assessment of it, uh, what are some other outcomes that are awaiting uh, a misstep such as that? Yeah, uh, oftentimes, like I said, if they are misdiagnosed in that, in that fashion, you get recurrent hospitalizations, you get higher unemployment rates, higher death rates for those who do have suicidal ideations. There's a multitude of things, higher substance use, higher encounters with law enforcement, uh, there are a lot of things that occur when a person is misdiagnosed. So I, go, go ahead, because I, I, you can you make a distinction between depression and a mood disorder? Because that seems to be an important distinction in how that's framed. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So sometimes, you know, you can be clinically depressed, just feeling low in mood. Uh, that's one thing. And then you also have, you do have some... Um, diagnoses like schizoaffective that are a psychotic disorder, but have the component of a mood dysregulation. So mm -hmm. your mood is up some sometimes and your mood is low sometimes. It's just mm -hmm. not stable across the board. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that matters because isn't it some sadness is expected, you know, given certain situations, it's prolonged sadness that makes the distinction between how it's treated, right? Sure. You know, some people have situational sad sadness, you know, it could be grief or loss, you mm -hmm. know, momentarily. It doesn't mean that it would be persistent or pervasive. You know, it just does not. Right. Now, what's inherent in the system that kind of contributes to this provider bias? Is it yeah. something that is uh, on a daily basis being combated or are some of these issues over time proven to be entirely almost insurmountable. Uh, can you speak to that a little bit? I can, I can. As I was going through and conducting some research, what I found that was a higher uh, rate of provider bias. And those providers came to the table with preconceived notions of a person or their culture. And mm -hmm. with that in mind, they would just give them a random or a quick diagnosis, usually erring on the side of something psychotic and passing them on with a bunch of medications that usually did not touch their symptoms. Mm. Um, yeah, you know, 
just that amount of implicit bias, maltreatment, those discriminatory practices was re resulting in a pernicious outcomes for um, African-Americans. And yeah. we're left with ineffective, you know, something that's not culturally attuned as an intervention. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and that's just damning at the end of the day. Yeah, it is. Uh, have we been able to find, and even in the research that you've done, uh, what's a better, more effective approach? Because you talk about they don't really get to the the root causes, the root issues that are contributing to the presenting condition. So what's a more effective way to treat something like this? You know, having a curriculum, um, not just given once a year, you know how they use like a, a, a sexual harassment training at work is once a year. Once a year, a, yep. For an hour or two or whatever it is. But what they found was really effectual was um, entering a provider bias reduction program or intervention, some kind of a curriculum that is taught in med school and also that's annually uh, for eight, 10 hours. Or in some cases, they would do it uh, biannually, like every six months, you had to take an eight hour course. Um, that tend to reduce uh, the amount of discriminatory practices, but not surprisingly, um, sometimes they had providers that would admit to curbing those uh, biased behaviors, but mm. not necessarily changing their mindset. Ooh. Okay. Yeah, that sounds pretty involved. So what are the implications as it pertains to the specific genders in the African-American com community? Does this, in what way does this impact African-American males versus Af African-American females? Any distinctions there? There were, actually were, there were a higher rate of it occurring with males. More bias against males. So there was more, a higher tendency to assess or diagnose their circumstances. Against more. males against males and they tend they tended to be prescribed more f with medicine to treat it yeah, rather than yeah they have a higher rate of diagnoses of psychotic disorders and medications but not surprisingly as a result they also african-american males also had a higher rate of non-compliance with medications and i want to say that um, i don't think the time is taken to um, evaluate what medications are being given mm -hmm. and also to make sure that there's no complications and that the medications are tolerable in the yeah. long run. Yeah, I've, I've, I had an unfortunate incident last year to witness um, an incident where we had um, a Caucasian female um, with a psychotic disorder and she became violent and she actually attacked one of the nurses. She actually cracked a couple of her ribs and, you know, she was off on disability. Hmm. Um, what they did was the patient remained in the hospital and they just placed her on a one-to-one. -one. They gave her an attendant um, that kept her in view at all times to just monitor her behavior. And hmm. they adjusted her medication until she was stable. Mm -hmm. It wasn't long after that, we had an African-American male that came in with an extensive criminal history, but he was not acting violently in the hospital, hmm. but he was observed by a provider telling um, another patient who was a Caucasian female 
uh, he was basically soliciting, soliciting her to prostitute once they were uh, discharged from the hospital. Mm. He was immediately released from the hospital. Mm. He was taken to a local shelter. Mm -hmm. And I was appalled um, because he wasn't acting out violently. Mm -hmm. It was in conversation. Yes, it was an inappropriate conversation. But mm -hmm. that was a conversation that needed to be had to him to help him monitor his behaviors. Right. Instead of ejecting him from the hospital and basically refusing service and taking him to a local shelter without prescriptions or follow-up care. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that, that seems to be a perfect example of the disparities there. So where are you taking this? I mean, as we, we wrap this up, in terms of your research and just long-term uh, prospectively with the work you're already doing and continuing to do beyond this project, uh, where do you see this going if uh, these issues are not addressed? And what will your research hope to uncover in terms of some viable options that have gone uh, to great lengths to curtail it? Right. Well, uh, fortunately, last year, we did have a Senate bill that passed. And mandatorily now, you have to have a bias reduction and anti-harassment um, curriculum in med school. So that helps providers as they're entering the field. Yes. We need that continuing education. So I'm creating a curriculum. Um, mm. It will be piloted through my hospital, pre-test, post-test. And mm. that will roll out um, at the beginning of the year. So I'm going to start trying to see how rapidly um, not just the behaviors can be reduced by um, providers, but also to see if we can touch on changing the mindsets, because that was one thing that I noticed through our research was that providers would say they were able to curtail their biased um, activities. However, it didn't change their mindset. So that mm -hmm. leads me to believe that it will occur again. Now, we can only liken that to something like a diet. You can go on a crash diet today, but if you don't change your eating habits over the long term, you're going to go back to eating the, the donuts and the ho-hos and you'll gain the weight back. So you can right. see that that will happen. You know, they'll soon relinquish, you know, the trainings that they've learned and they'll go back to the biased behaviors at some point. Mm -hmm. So we need to look at it over the long term so we can reduce the rehospitalization. We can increase, you know, education and self-efficacy amongst you know, African-American, not just males, but the females too. Absolutely. Absolutely. You make a good point. I mean, looking longitudinally at these issues is a more effective approach than looking at, <laughs> if I may use your term, the short-term crash diets. Right. <laughs> give you a temporary jolt of uh, satisfaction that, hey, look, I made the change. But then you look long-term, they just retreat back to form. And so it's important to look at these changes over time, because just like the U.S. census, that's why we don't do the census every year either. You, we do the census every 10 years. And so we have to have these type of studies into the ecosystem so that we can look and see what are the current trends to see how well we're doing on these issues. So you make a great point. And I really appreciate this effort and this research that you're doing. Uh, come back and let us know how it goes. Uh, I'm very fascinated and invested in this issue. Will you come back sometime and join us on Psychotic Bomb School? Absolutely. I appreciate that. That's Vivian Lewis Mitchell, social worker in Northern California, y'all. Stay tuned for more. We'll be right back after this. Yo, yo, what's up, everybody? This is your man, Eric Rico, and you're currently in tune to Psychotic Bump School with your host, DJ Rome, 
on kcwgthetruth.com, the best internet radio station on the planet. Yes, we are back. KCWG, the truth.com. The name of this program is Psychotic Bump School. My name is DJ Rome. And ladies and gentlemen, you know, anytime I got this lift in my voice, we got a very special guest in the house. This good brother hasn't been here for a couple of years, but nevertheless, it's always exciting to catch up to him. He is a multi-instrumental talent, a vocal extraordinaire. This good brother does it all, and he is all about the realness in the music, y'all. I mean, when you hear this cat's voice, man, you are, you're you're going to know right away. So it's always a pleasure to catch up. <laughs> so ladies and gentlemen, please help me welcome back to Psychotic Bump School, our good brother, Mr. Eric Rico. Mr. Rico, are you in the house? Yes, sir, and thank you so very much for having me, man. I'm it's a pleasure always to connect with you and discuss music and, you know, its social impact and what's happening in the world and how trends are going and everything, you know, under the umbrella of music and creation. It's always a pleasure, man, to connect with you. You're one of the true cats in the game. That's always, you know, doing your best to, like, keep the real true music alive and, and you know, steer people in the right direction. So I'm very appreciative and grateful to have this opportunity again, you know, to hook up with you. Man. High words from high places, brother. I appreciate you, man. Well, um, oh, given that, man, I'm, I'm going to appreciate this. Yeah, thank you, man. Thank you, man. It's been nothing but respect since we've known each other, man. So Absolutely. Mr. Rico and I, we go back a little bit and, you know, he's from them spots, you know what I'm saying? But one thing you might be able to appreciate this, brother, is his knowledge and appreciation for music. So we're, we're going to talk about your career and what you got going on with these two latest projects. But before I get into that, okay. uh, we had some okay. trending stories that came out of the weekend. Um, the rapper Sexy Red, she has a track racing up the charts right now. She's not my particular cup of tea, but there was a shooting mm. across the street from one of her video shoots. And uh, it was fatal. So uh, she did... Really? Prayers, yeah. There was a shooting across the street from the uh, video shooting of a sexy red video. The rapper Sexy Red. Is, She's okay. In St. Louis? Uh, I believe it's Florida. I think it's Florida. Florida. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I think it was Florida. So uh, rest in wow. peace to the family members of the people that uh, lost loved ones in that one. Uh, I don't know if you heard this story. The founder of uh, Billboard magazine, Mr. Rico, I don't know if you heard this. And like I said, oh, they got bumped from Rolling Stone? Man, uh, Jan Winter. Yeah, I don't know if you see your screen, but this brother, well, he ain't a brother, but he said that he only interviews certain people for his uh, latest book because (laughs) uh, some women and some black artists of high esteem. uh, reputation, including Marvin Gaye and Curtis Mayfield, he named them specifically. He said basically they wouldn't offer enough intellectual value for this book, and so he's yeah, I mean, bounced. They were inarticulate. Bruh, what is going on? What is going on? Amen. So uh, <laughs> I want to get your thoughts on these latest two because uh, you'll be able to appreciate this. This good brother right here, Ed Wright. You ever heard of Ed Wright? I've never heard of him. I think I, think I have. What, okay. Familiar. Okay. So he might sound familiar because he's from the OGs generation, like Clarence Avon, Ed Eckstein, oh, yeah. of the Mazel oh, Brothers. Yeah. I mean, 
he just passed away uh, over the weekend. We Ed Wright. Uh, he, along with uh, Kenneth Gamble of Gamble and Huff fame, uh, they formed a conglomerate that eventually led to the formation of Black Music Month being in the month of June. Okay, so he is yeah. considered one of the pioneers of how to really position artists in terms of being able to take advantage of their economic value. Uh, he's from that generation of the Black Godfather, who we also lost recently, uh, Eric Rico. Clarence? Yeah. Clarence Avon, you know, so Ed Wright. I never heard of him, brother. And actually, it's, it's wild because he is back. Um, one of my business partners mm-hmm. uh, and, and longtime friends is like a brother to me. Mm-hmm. He um, has a lot of connections in, in the Philadelphia, Pennsylvania area. And we went out there together and did some things with Kenneth Gamble. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Now, uh, I don't know if you know this, but Kenneth Gamble in the Philadelphia area and Pennsylvania, the state, is particularly in Philadelphia has an, an extremely strong presence. There's a huge black uh, Muslim community in, in Philadelphia. Mm. I think the second or third largest in the country. Wow. And what he did was he's, very, he's been very instrumental in building a section of the city, particularly for the black community and for the black Islamic community, their own schools, nurseries, hospitals. Uh, he's heavily involved. Radio stations, restaurants, there's a, an area of Philadelphia called South Street, which is like mm. the main drag of downtown. And they own a large percentage of that area as well. He is heavily invested into the city and into the empowerment of the black community in Philly and has been for years. So he's talking about <laughs> Kenneth Gamble. Yes. Wow. Yes. Wow. He's no joke, I'm saying. No he's joke. like the unofficial mayor of black Philadelphia. Man, you're not kidding. Yeah, I do trust you, man. Thank you for sharing that. I had no idea. Uh, he's talking about gamble. Did you ever go to Philly? No, not yet. Did you ever visit Philadelphia? No. Just look into the Black arts community and the Black community at large in Philadelphia, and in particular the Islamic community. Yeah. And you'll see what his stand, what his status is out there in the community. That dude is. I mean, he's so heavily invested and he's so genuine about uplifting the community. Wow. Well, here it is right here. Uh, he first met uh, the late, great Ed Wright at a NATRA convention. NATRA stands for the National Association of TV, Television, and Radio Announcers. Uh, Ed Wright mm-hmm. was one of the youngest people to leave that organization. And through that association with this Kenneth Gamble that you're talking about, who's doing so many things wonderfully in Philadelphia, uh, they mm-hmm. formed Black Music Month in the month of June. Black Music Month wouldn't yeah. be possible mm-hmm. by- without this good brother, Mr. Ed Rice. So may he rest in peace. And the last one, then we're going to talk about a good brother. We're going to talk about your music, but did you hear about this one? This one's kind of huge, man. Shouts out to Ohio. This good brother is Fred Lewis of the funk band Lakeside. He was the percussionist. He wrote the song, It's All The Way Live, the very, very, very first hit record for Lakeside when they first signed Mm -hmm. Solar Records. Okay? He wrote the first two hits, including... Pull my strings. Uh, we just lost. Mm. This is uh, wow. you know, Dayton, Ohio is considered the king and uh, the the center of funk. Uh, Lakeside oh, is right in the middle of that. And Fred Lewis, mm-hmm. one of the architects of the funk for the band Lakeside, we just lost him, Eric Rico. Wow. Yeah, Ohio has a big standing in the in the vintage funk scene. Bootsy and all those guys came out of there. A lot of people don't know that. You know. Yeah, man. Yeah, man. Shouts out wow. to. Ohio, because I, I forgot to mention Ed yeah. Wright 
It's actually in Cincinnati, uh, where mm -hmm. uh, Bootsy is, you know, from the Cincinnati, and then mm -hmm. Fred out of the uh, you know, probably closer to the Dayton area. So all these things yeah. going on in the world of music, Eric Rico. So I thought you of all people would be able to appreciate some of those stories. So shouts out to all of them. But we are here talking yeah. to the brother, Mr. Eric Rico. Good brother. What in the world, man? It, it, it's like I said, man. I mean, I shared those stories with you because I know how it would probably resonate with you and the, the way yeah. that you put your music together, the sound textures that you uh, add to your music, the all of the uh, the, the layered melodies and harmonic uh, features that you feature in your vocal production, your mm -hmm. instrumentation, mm -hmm. the sound of real natural uh, instruments. Uh, I know you're yeah. the real cat, man. So I want to just thank you and shout you out for keeping music alive and real, real music that cats like me thank and crew can really sink our teeth into and appreciate, good brother. So shouts out to you as we talk about your production prop. This latest production project you have coming up right now, good brother. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, first and foremost, man, can we revisit something? Because you, you're making some really valid and serious points here. Mm. The contrast between people like an Ed Wright, Kenneth Gamble, you know, back to the, that particular era, foundation that they laid because of the time that they came up in, and those influences that we were the, the generation to come after them. So it's like, you have people that came up in the bebop jazz era and then the fusion era, which melded, you know, the first edition of like futuristic electronic synthesizers and stomp pedals and different things like that, that were introduced through people that came up primarily as acoustic jazz players. You know, your um, Herbie Hancock's and Miles Davis and people like that that were primarily acoustic, that were able to merge into the like early 70s, early to mid 70s into fusion which led into funk. Mm. But those people grew up studying songwriters and songs. They grew up listening to the radio. They grew up with a limited amount of exposure because they didn't have a thousand stations to go to. But, you know, they had a radio and a television. And what was basically given to them, even though they had limited channels, was a wide variety of stuff. And they were influenced by watching musicians and watching singers. Sampling and all that stuff didn't exist at that time. That's right. So, you know, you had people that, musicians that inspired musicians, singers that inspired singers. Not to, you know, this was happening nowadays. I produce hip-hop. I love hip-hop. Hip-hop is an amalgamation of the Black struggle and the influence of jazz and soul music. You know, all those things are infused in hip-hop. So I appreciate that. But now we have this other spin on even hip-hop with trap and rap and all that stuff. And not that it's all negative. But when you talk about gambling health and that generation, and then you talk about, and you put that against a paradox or something like sexy red. I mean, man, it's telling within itself because on the one hand, you have people building community. On the other hand, you have people destroying community. Well, and it's just that simple to me. Mm -hmm. And I can't endorse that. I hear you. I hear there you. There was no shooting on gambling health sets. There was no shooting Bruh. on international sets. There was no shooting on lakeside sets. You know? Say that. Say that. And yeah, man, That's I mean... I'm very, I'm very passionate about my influences and doing everything I can to not only retain them, but to influence the youth to be musicians because it takes a certain amount of discipline. It takes a certain amount of 
sacrifice. It takes a certain amount of respect and understanding to really want to go that route. But mm-hmm. it may not be the most glamorous. It may not be the most financial rewarding. But spiritually, it's the most rewarding. This is your girl, Reese, and you're listening to DJ Rome on Psychotic Bump School, the place where education and entertainment meet at the intersection of funk and soul. I cannot let you go without talking about your signature musical style because, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we're talking to Eric Rico on uh, Psychotic Bump School, KCWGTheTruth.com. The good brother Eric Rico has rejoined us on Psychotic Bump School. My name is DJ Rome. This good brother's signature style <laughs> is his vocals. This cat sounds like 25 people just entered the studio and got on the vocal track <laughs> with him. And this cat sounds like a band all by himself. So I cannot let you go without talking about your vocal prowess, your 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 production on your vocals, brother, because I can even hear it on The Journey Continues. You put a lot of time into your singing. You put a lot of time oh, yeah. in crafting the, the harmonic structure of each note that you're harmonizing when you're harmonizing with yourself. And again, it sounds like 25 different voices, but it's just you. So can you please spend some time educating the audience about vocal production, 
how important it is to you in your overall uh, musical palette and template. How do you do what you do, good brother, Mr. Eric Rico? It's multi-layered, part of the time, no pun intended, but it's multi-layered because here's the funny thing. When I was in LA producing a lot of hip hop, right? Mm -hmm. I was reluctant. This is me. I got into that world coming out of two major label deals as an artist, as a self-contained artist, Sony and Capital. When mm -hmm. I got out of those deals, finally, and it, and it took so much of a toll on me spiritually, dude, just dealing with all the drama of like, oh man, you signed to a major label. Two years into it, oh, it's drama. Uh, the person that signed you is leaving the label. He's going to a place you don't want to be at, so now you're stuck. Now what? And then you get interest from another situation. You get into that. The infrastructure seems good, but then the same kind of drama kicks off, and then it's like you're doubting yourself. You don't know if you, know, you even want to deal with corporate labels, like, and then at, at one point, it was like, am I going to let the corporate label structure? Not that it's all bad for everyone. It works for some people. For me, it didn't work. And it was like, are you going to let the corporate business thing kill your zest for wanting to create music? And I had to really sit down with myself and think about that. And then I had a group of core friends that I knew I was definitely creating in my own studio at the time in, in, uh, in, in, in Hollywood. They would come by and play them stuff. They would freak out. And they're like, man, this is dope. This is dope. And that went on for like two or three years like that. Finally, I'm having lunch with one of my core friends. And he was the catalyst of me like flipping the switch and saying, okay, it's time to do this. He says to me at lunch, I tell him, hey, man, I'm, I'm about to take a trip to Europe and do some exploration and see what's up over there and, you know, consider releasing some music in the European market. And he goes, he takes this big sigh and goes, man, thank God. And I'm like, what's up? He's like, I was beginning to think that, you know, the corporate music scene that turned you off so much that you were just going to hoard your stuff and never put anything out. And when he said that to me, it hurt. Like, because he's a brother to me. It was like a gut punch. But I, he, he, he didn't mean anything uh, malicious. It was just, his, he saw the pattern that, that had developed in me, which was create and hoard, create and hoard. And I got to the point where I was like, I just got to go explore something different and get into a different energy, which is why I went to Europe. But yep. to answer your question about the whole like vocal layering thing and my approach to vocal production, it comes back down to what we originally discussed about music in general. You know, those tendencies to have those not copy people, but you can't help but have influences. And the people that influence and inspire me are Prince, Evie, James Brown, Curtis Mayfield, you know, people that just had great vocal harmonies, melodies, arrangements. It just took me to another place where I could sit with headphones in my mom's house, in my bedroom with a team, and just zone out based on, you know, their melodies and harmony structure and their lyrical content. And it, it just took me to another place. So I'm like, when I sit down to write, that's my goal. Like, how can I get that feeling that I got from them? When I sit down to write a song, that's that's my point of reference. It's like themes will come to me, different melodies will come to me, thank God. You know, just trying to be a conduit and let stuff pass through, not get in the way of it. But at the, the end goal for me is always like when I listen back to something I'm working on, do I get the feeling I get when I listen to to my to my idols? If I don't get that feeling, then I know it's not good enough. Mm -hmm. so I'll scrap it and do something else. But my process like Prince, you know, going in as a, as a multi-instrumentalist and being able to transform your voice, like not have every track sound like this you. Like on background vocals, I might do a different key, I might use a different mic, 
I'll purposely try to sing different registers and textures so that it doesn't, it doesn't sound like truly of one person. It sounds like mm. different people. That's oh. my mental approach is like, if I'm going to do backing vocals and it's going to be a four-part harmony and four layers, you know, eight to ten vocals, I want it to sound like four or five different people laid the vocals out. Then it can sound like Eric Rico on the lead. But I always want to approach the vocal because the voice is an instrument like any other instrument. When you sit down to play chords on a piano or a guitar is even a better example. As you move up and down the neck and you do different inflections and different chords and different structures, they take on different colors. Why can't, you know, why not think of your voice in the same way? Use your voice, you know, make different colors. When you do different layering and different harmonies parts, I'm very aware of that when I'm on the microphone. Like, if you listen to a song like on the Journey Continues album, if you listen to a song like Show Me, it starts out with the beat, but then the instruments slowly get introduced. It's a very minimal song as far as the production. And the vocals aren't, the vocal production isn't uh, super layered, but the layers that are there, I went out of my way to try to make them sound like six different people. Mm. So it's like, that's the kind of thing that I'm very cognizant of when I'm in the studio, when I'm working. Wow. And, that, and it only comes from like, you know, listening to people that, you know, love and limited orchestra. Marvin, Marvin was a king of laying his voice. Absolutely. I want to, you know, as, as a perfect example, like, man, you're talking about layering vocals. But people don't understand, Marvin came from the, from the doo-wop era with Motown. <laughs> mm-hmm. So he had that, it was ingrained in him to know how to go in a session and make his voice a multiple instrument. You know, that was ingrained. That was part of who he was. So mm-hmm. those are the kind of cats I've studied. You know, and again, I'm not saying I'm at their level, but those those are the people I you have to have something you aspire to that's greater than you. And for me it's those cats. It's like when I listen back to my stuff, if I don't get that, that chill I got from them, I know I'm not there. I know the song isn't ready. I know it's missing. I know I need to go back and revisit it and and tweak it and make it better.
understand your worth Just let me know what you need And I've got you guaranteed Cause this love is more precious than anything on this earth We've reached the point where it truly feels like to my science for lack of a better word absolutely and one of your contemporaries kind of reminds me of you as well i had his good brother wes felton on here multiple times but raheem devon <laughs> yeah man <laughs> raheem devon raheem wes Bilal, um Dwele, always get mentioned in the same breath especially when i'm overseas especially overseas so the fact that you are bringing that same thing to the table dude is like it, it's a trip because when I'm overseas, that's what every interview I get that. Wes Felton, uh, Bilal, it's always the same wow. group of cats that get mentioned together. Always. And good I'm company. honest, because I, I love those dudes. Yeah, that's good company, right? Yeah, man. Wow. Big time. And, and within that, that's a whole lot of diversity. But just within that collective. Right. 
Right. But if, but if you see all those cats come from what thing? It all come from this one core thing, musicality and playing instruments. If you don't see Bilal on stage playing, but Bilal plays keys and guitar. And I've seen him in concert before. He didn't he didn't play either one of those instruments when I saw him. So he didn't that... play nothing on stage. He just right. has to be free to do his vocals and wild out. But he plays keys and guitar. Look at that. Blaylay plays keys, trumpet, bass. Blaylay's a trumpet player who plays keys and bass, you know? I've seen I've seen Dwele live. I've seen him play keys. Never saw him play trumpet though. That's amazing. Yeah, like Pevin Everett, another cat that gets mentioned in our circle. Keys, guitar, trumpet. Yep. Yep. I'm like, yo, dude, those cats are those are the real cats. Yeah, they are. And <laughs> they're the real cats, man. They're the real. You I mean, in the studio. Yeah. On stage with anybody. Absolutely, and they can hold their own. They they can hold their own. You guys didn't sell out either. I mean, Pevin Everett, I'm sure he was, I think he did some stuff with gorillas that kind of broke him out to a, a wider audience. Yeah, yeah. And you know, that was because of Twilight Tone. Yeah. Twilight Tone, the Chicago producer who works with Common and all them, he reached back and got Pevin because he was tapped to do some stuff for gorillas. And he's like, Pevin would be perfect vocally for these cats and it would provide him the vehicle to blow up. Did you say Twilight Tone? Yeah, yeah Twilight Tone. The DJ Twilight Tone. Bruh. Um, because they're all Chicago cats. See, we uh, we met him. He played at Juju uh, when we were in Inglewood, La Brea, and the, uh, the funny yeah, thing. Played at Juju, he stayed at my pad. <laughs> you you're joking. When y'all had him at Juju, he was he stayed at my loft in Hollywood. You're joking. No, my my boy Doug Lee, Lee Douglas, the DJ, Korean cat who now lives in Germany. And that's the one who brought Tone to LA, and Tone stayed at my crib. I was there, dude. There wow. was a lost party. There was a Friday night lost party in Hollywood. Then Saturday, he played Juju. The Get people out that of brought him in to do the lost party were my people. The, the, the cover of Journey Back to Me, my first album, mm -hmm. was shot that same weekend in that loft that they brought him to come in and play. That Friday at the loft, and then uh, uh, after hours, Friday night, which is now the Urban Outfitters on Coenga. That used to be a, a private loft. Mm. in Hollywood. The cat that owned it uh, uh, at the time, him and my boys, all people, we talked him into letting us use the loft for an all-night Friday night party. Then the Saturday night home played at Juju. He stayed at, my, he stayed at my place the whole time. We shot my, the album cover for Journey that same weekend in that loft. Wow. Yeah, it, it's all tied together, bro. It's all <laughs> tied together. Yeah. So you were there that night at Juju that Saturday then? Absolutely. See, the thing that was crazy, it, it was, it was the way the planets lined up that because he was supposed to be the only featured guest we had, but you know who else was mm -hmm. there that night, right? That night we also... Uh, was it the same night Ron Trent played? No, he's another great one out of Chicago though, right? It wasn't him. Yeah, because I, I came down for Ron too. Wow. Uh, what what hip hop group were we talking about the most that Tip is from? Oh, Tribe, yeah. Ali Shahima. Yeah, Muhammad. that's right, man. <laughs> was the, man, oh my God. <laughs> you don't know how many times I wrote and posted and reminisced about Juju at, at Dick's, man. Wow. LA is for me personally, I didn't grow up in Los Angeles, mm -hmm. but I spent close to 14 years off and on being based there. And I'm here to tell you, bro, for me, I, that, that had, there was never anything like or never been anything since mm. like Juju at Fifth Street Dicks. Nothing. 
Nothing. Wow. The, the combination of the musical vibes, blackness, the mm. Afrocentricity, the positivity. It was, dude, that was revolutionary. Wow. It, that was, I mean, I don't even have words to explain to you. And I'm being extremely sincere. I'm not saying this because of, because of the entity. Because mm -hmm. I've said this countless times online and in conversation with different people. I have never, ever, ever, with the exception of partying in Harlem, New York, I have never experienced anything so positively culturally black musically in my life like Juju. Juju was life changing to me. It really was. And it was the kind of party that all everyone I knew in LA, especially in the art scene, would wait and anticipate happening. That once a month, it was like, yeah, we'll go to this and that and does your mama know and maybe to deep and blah, blah, blah. But man, when is Juju happening? That was the place. So everything else was hit or miss. When Juju came around, there was no question. If you didn't get there early, you didn't get in. Because hmm. once you got the capacity, that was it. Then you guys started opening the back. <laughs> and then it was the same. It wasn't long before that. It was the same difference. Hey, if you don't get in early, you ain't getting there. Yeah. <laughs> that man. Oh, my God. That's the time capsule dude, that will, I will always remember. Always. Man. I mean, the impact was just a, well, the ripple effect of Juju, dude. I don't know if you guys ever really understood the importance of that event. Mm -hmm. Did you guys ever like really grasp how, in, how impactful it was? We did. And I, I get that question a lot too because people, uh, it, it looks like we don't. And I think it's because our good brother Al, all of us, yeah. we weren't yeah. flashy. We weren't flashy with it, man. We just knew what the yeah, mission exactly. was and we, un we understood the assignment. And so yeah. we just went about the business of fulfilling the assignment and we just let the fruits of it just fall where it may. And what returns we got out of it would be a bonus to the primary goal was to put on a quality event but to do something really for the people we never lost sight of that mission and we never we never as good as al was he never made it about him he was kind of like tip in that way he never made it about just one person yeah. he, it was never just about him or just one person it was about the people not even the crew it wasn't about the crew the soldier it was about the eric ricos out there it was about y'all Dude, and it, and it was obvious that it was that way the whole time because, like, it felt like a total, absolute community family gathering every time. And mm. it was the one party in L.A. that I would not miss at, at all. And I was known in L.A. to, like, be a loner and a person that didn't go out much. The inside joke was when people would see me somewhere, I don't, they would roll up on me and be like, say I was at Little Temple or Temple Bar or at Does, Does Your Mama Know or Deep. People would roll up on me during the course of the night and be like, you, you, there must be some kind of meeting going on or something. You don't go nowhere. That was like the end joke about me. But I would always be a Juju, no matter what. And it, it fed my spirit, man. Bless your heart, man. Bless, bless your ever-loving heart. Truly, I mean, everything about it, you know? Mm. Then you leave the party at night, walk right up the street, there's the moment with the African food. There's the moment with the soul food. Yeah, man. This is a whole experience right here. 
within this yes. one area right here. This is an experience that you can't get anywhere else in this city. Wow. That's why it meant so much to so many people, dude. You could it embodied so much like spiritually and and community wise and culturally and you couldn't get that anywhere. Not nothing close to it. And people tried to knock it off, you know? Mm. When dicks closed or with parties, people tried to knock it off. No. I went to a couple of things trying to get trying to get something close to that. Dude, it did, I mean, so let down. But no, it's this or it's nothing. Because once you're used to quality, you can't go back. It's like that old saying. Mm. You raise a kid on vegetables, you can't feed them junk after that. Come on. <laughs> Impossible. You have to grow up, they'll get sick. Bruh. But in, in, in reverse, if you raise a kid on junk, can't give them vegetables. Wow. Look at that. It's real. It is real. Wow. Well, I tell you, man, you just made my whole weekend. The good brother's name is Mr. Eric Rico. See this reciprocal respect you guys are hearing, ladies and gentlemen, that's because this cat is a real one. And the, the, the level of creativity that this man has brought to the scene has been nothing short of a gift to all of music you, specifically it, man. It's, it's mutual it's mutual man i mean he, he, you're a gift man i mean for you to have such a vast appreciation for what we humbly have offered and you as being someone who's been around the world um it, it means a lot it means more than you'll ever know that uh we could share this conversation and share this space together and have me reflect back humbly on something that, quite frankly, still makes me kind of emotional, but to hear from well, you, me too, dude. I was getting emotional just talking about it when I was just yeah, man. how Juju made me feel. That same feeling welled up inside me. Yeah, man. Yeah, man. So uh, I appreciate you, man. I I, I want to wish you the best with this incredible project you have. Uh, the 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 journey continues, and it just never Thank stops. So the beat down collection. The brother is super talented, and not to mention. Uh, on fatdrop.co.uk, the good brother, along with the good brother, Mr. C. Boogie. Yes, sir. Osmosity's records. Come on now. Uh, go out yeah, and it's coming out uh, October. October, one day before my birthday. Look at that. Look at that. Oh, bro, real quick, can I sneak this in? Yeah, go ahead. I don't want to give away too much. Okay. But, uh, you will be seeing a lot more of me in the near future. Uh-oh. And I'm not talking about just hearing music. I'm saying physically seeing. Hmm. I won't say any more. Man, well, just please keep in touch. And even if you oh, drop it without telling, I mean, I'm going to be looking out for it. And I'll be pleasantly surprised because I, I know you don't want to tip your hand right now. And I respect that. Mm -hmm. But I know it's going to be fire, man. I already know. <laughs> I already know. Good brother. Yeah, there's some, um, things, there's some things that are going to be bringing me out west, so you'll be seeing me soon. We're going to be looking for you, brother. And uh, thank you, man. Yeah, thank man. you for always being real to this scene and being a real cat. Uh, we appreciate you, man. I love you. And uh, you've always been a good people, too, man. So uh, much respect to you, okay? Thank you, brother. The love is returned, and I look forward to seeing you all soon and continuing to you know, keep this musical journey alive, man. Well, that's our show, y'all. Psychotic Bump School is the place where education and entertainment meet. 
at the intersection of funk and soul. My name is DJ Rome, and you know we're here every Monday evening from 5.30 p.m. to 7 p.m. Pacific time, and it repeats again on Friday evenings from 6.30 p.m. to 8 p.m. Pacific time. Check back with us. We shall return next week. Also want to thank our very, very special guests for the evening, Kiana Gant, Vivian Lewis-Mitchell, Teresa Gonzalez, and of course, the good brother, Mr. Eric Rico. Also want to send a very, very special shout out to Mr. Frank Starks, who is the Iron Man behind the board. And we're out of here, y'all. Take care. <laughs>